picture of James. Unfortunately, we don't have time to dive in too deep here. But if you were to ask me what I think is basically the, the big idea or the, the central truth of James, is it's, it's showing us what a mature Christian looks like. How can you spot a mature Christian? How can you know if you are a mature Christian? How do you know if somebody is a Christian? Well, these are important questions, and James is helpful, very helpful in this regard. It's a very practical book, uh, and so uh, there's, there's a lot of application here, which I hope that we'll take God's Word and not just be hearers only, but doers of it as well. So let's dive right in. We're going to look at these, these marks of a mature Christian. And the first one we see here in chapter 1 is that a mature Christian is patient in testing. A mature Christian is patient in testing. You'll see right there in the very first verse, of course, the human author the Holy Spirit used is James, and he describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's writing to people who were going through difficult times. They were going through testing and trials and suffering and and affliction. It wasn't an easy time in that first century, and so James understood what they were going through, and he's writing to to help them, to encourage them. And first mark of a mature Christian is that they're patient in testing. And it's interesting in the in very in the in the first verse or the second verse it says, look at verse number two: Count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. So i got to ask the question, since James tells us this, how is a Christian able to have joy in the midst of troubles? How are you able to have joy in the midst of troubles? By the way, you realize joy is a different thing from happiness. Happiness, often I think of happiness more based on my circumstances, uh, whereas joy has nothing to do with circumstances. It's, it's a state, if you will, a, a position that you can have no matter what your circumstances look like. And, and so James is telling us to count it all joy, even when you're meeting trials of various kinds. So how is that even possible? Well, James gives the answer here in chapter 1. And what he's going to do, by the way, I'll just give you a heads up, He's going to point to God. He's going to tell us some things about God that will encourage us. And, and, and because of who God is and what he's doing, it's possible to have joy when you're going through trials. The first thing he mentions here is that is encouraging is we can be sure of God's purpose. God has a purpose for the testing that you go through. So look at, at verse 3. Look at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. By the way, full effect, notice that. What is the effect? What's God's purpose in your testing? Look at verse 4. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So my friends, your experiences in life are not by accident. You see, we have a loving Heavenly Father 
who controls this world, who, who has a purpose behind the events that happen in our lives. And so Christians should expect trials to come. We should expect trials to come. And, and you say, well, why do I say that? Because even in the language that James is using here, notice he says, James doesn't, well, let me say what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if trials come. Did you notice that? He says, when these trials, when the testing comes, James knows it's going to come. God knows he's going to give it to us. And so what is God's purpose in the trials then? Notice it is the perfection of Christian character. God is striving to complete you. He is striving to bring you to spiritual maturity. He wants his children to be mature. And that's a good thing, by the way. Just like those of us who have children and grandchildren, we we don't desire them to be sucking on a milk bottle all of their life, right? We want them to grow up. In fact, we as parents, we sometimes say, why don't you grow up, right? Why don't you grow up? Well, God wants his children to grow up and be mature. And so maturity is something that's only developed in the laboratory of life. And so knowing that God has a purpose is going to help us then to yield to his working in our life. So there's some things we can be sure of here. And the first one he talks about is we can be sure of God's purpose. Number two, we can be sure of God's goodness. We can be sure of God's goodness. Not only is God in control, not only is he all-powerful, but he's a good God. So he's great and good at the same time. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This talks of God's goodness. And many people seem to have this idea that uh, somehow because God is good, that he is, he's not going to allow his children to suffer. He's not going to allow them to be tempted. And, and he goes against that very argument there in verse 13, does he not? God wants his children to grow up. He doesn't want them to be immature. And so one of the ways uh, they can mature is by going through trials, going through temptations, just like we do in our physical lives. Going through experiences in our physical lives helps us to, to grow up. And so in this passage, James is emphasizing the goodness of God. He's warning Christians about rebelling against God in times of trial. Don't rebel. Realize that God has a purpose. God's in control. He's, he's using your trials for the good. 
And so there's some things we need to point out here. Well, first of all, you need to understand there's a, a distinction between trials and temptations. Okay, In the text, you'll see both words. And that's because there's two different Greek words. And so what you need to understand is that God is the one who is sending the trials, and he has a purpose in that. He wants to, us to grow up. He wants to bring us uh, uh, the best out of us, whereas temptation is not a good thing, is it? Satan sends temptations, and he's trying to bring the worst out of us. Okay? The other thing you need to keep in mind here is that James reminds these believers here that God gives only good gifts. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe God only gives good gifts? If you do, then, then you're not, if you really believe that, then you're not going to complain about the gifts that God gives to you. And sometimes the gift is a trial. But what's our natural tendency? Often our natural, sinful, fleshly tendency is to grumble and complain about the trial that came into our life, right? But instead, what should we do? We need to be swift to hear the Word of God, trust it, and obey it. So we can be sure of God's purpose. We can be sure of God's goodness. And the third one is we can be sure of God's Word. We can be sure of God's Word. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless." Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So my friends, if we as believers are going to receive the word and get strength from it as we go through trials, then you have to treat your life kind of like a garden. If you have a garden, let's say a vegetable garden, okay, it's not a healthy thing to ignore weeds, is it? Because, as you know, weeds are, they're ornery. <laughs> they're stubborn. They, hang, they have this tendency of hanging around, and when they're left and ignored, they have this tendency of taking over, don't they? Well, in verse 21, we have a phrase, and it's kind of like the weeds of the Christian life. In verse 21, there's that phrase, rampant wickedness. Rampant wickedness is kind of like the weeds in your, in your uh, garden of life, if you will. Uh, rampant wickedness is something you don't want to ignore. It tends to hang around. 
you don't want to ignore it. You want to deal with it. You want to rip those roots out. You think of your heart as kind of like soil. Jesus used a parable to talk about the four kinds of soil. And it all has to do with receiving. How do we receive the Word of God? Well, your soil of your heart has to be prepared in order to receive the seed of the Word. But sadly, though, sometimes we can have unconfessed sin in our lives. We can have bitterness against God. And when we do, it it uh, makes it hard to receive the Word and to be blessed by it. So, chapter 1 tells us all about a mature Christian. But let's move on to chapter 2, and we see an, another mark of a mature Christian is that they practice the truth. Mature Christian practices the truth. Now let me give you a phrase from Galatians chapter 5 or 6. It says the Christian life is described as faith working through love. And these two aspects of faith are described for us here in James chapter 2. Faith working through love. So the basic idea is that true faith isn't dead. It reveals itself in two ways. We're going to see both of them here. True faith reveals itself in love and in works. And so the problem is, too many people, even people who claim to be Christians and who attend churches, they, they have a head knowledge about Jesus Christ. They, they would claim to know facts about Jesus Christ, right? But they don't have a heart belief. They have faith in maybe the facts of a historic Christianity but they don't have saving faith in Christ personally. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how do you know if you're a genuine Christian? You want to know if you're a genuine Christian? James chapter 2 makes it very clear. And we're going to see that faith is proved by love and works. Well, let's take the first one. Let's see, we're going to see here, number one, that faith is proved by our love. Look what James says in the very first verse of chapter 2. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is He? He's the Lord of glory. He's the Lord of glory. You say, well, what is the point of verse 1 there? See, we're not simply to have faith. We're to practice this faith. In other words, live out this faith in our daily lives. Because, see, what, what is shown on the outside is really evidence of what's on the inside, is it not? We, we must not believe in God in some vague way. We, instead, we must have a personal faith in Jesus Christ specifically. Now, how do we show love to others? All right, well, this, this chapter goes on to, to give us various ways. But... We, we have to show love to others by accepting them for who they are, seeing them as persons for whom Christ died. We're not to judge others. We're not to condemn them. And, and the first few verses here talk about preferring the rich to the poor. And James calls that a sin, by the way. When you're showing partiality, is that's when you're preferring the rich people. You say a poor person walks into, or a homeless person walks in, we ignore that person. We don't talk to them. We, we just ignore them. But if a rich person was to walk in, you know, I don't know, like the mayor of the city or someone, I don't know. 
you know, but we, we shower all kinds of honor and respect and, and push, push away poor people. Well, James is saying, don't do that. That's a sin. Christ became poor that we might be rich in him. Then look what verse 8 says. Chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, what does it say? It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Hmm. By the way, you might ask, well, what's so sinful about showing respect to wealthy people? Well, for one thing, it makes you the judge. And the Bible says only God can honestly judge a person. He says so in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Rhetorical question. My friend, you can't be the judge. Only God is the judge. So faith is proved by love. And then the chapter goes on and spends a lot of time showing that faith is proved by our works. Faith is proved by our works. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith save him? We all know that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. But the kind of faith that that doesn't have the works, can that kind of faith save anyone? Well, of course, a sinner saved by faith without works, the Bible says, but true saving faith is going to lead to works. Being a Christian is not just a matter of what we say with our lips. It involves what we're doing with our lives. Both of those should match up, theoretically. And there's a challenge for us in verse 18. Interesting challenge. Show me your faith without your works. Is that possible? And the answer is no, that's impossible to do. Because if you look at verse 19, even the demons know some things about God, but their faith is dead, right? Look at, look at verse 19. Because it says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So the demons, they know a lot of truth. But that truth hasn't translated into a saving faith. We, we know the Bible tells us the end result for Satan and all those demons is the lake of fire. They have not repented. They have not trusted in Jesus Christ alone. So James reaches, as, as the chapter goes on here, he's reaching back into the Old Testament. He gives us a couple Old Testament examples of genuine faith. So if you want to know what does genuine faith look like, well, here's a couple examples from the Old Testament. The first example here is Abraham. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21 gives us the example of Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, 
And he was called a friend of God. So Abraham showed his faith by his works. He showed that he was trusting in God, believing in God by what he did. The second example is Rahab. Rahab was a Gentile. Remember, Rahab lived in the city of Jericho. God said he was going to destroy Jericho. And she's the only one in Jericho who survived. Why? Because she had genuine faith. Look at verse 25. Verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Rhetorical question again. So we see in Abraham and Rahab a couple examples of how genuine faith is proved by works. It doesn't save, but it proves that they are saved. And then in verse 24, it really summarizes the entire matter. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So faith that does not lead to works is not saving faith. Now, sad to say, there's multitudes of professing Christians and even church members who have dead faith. They're, they're not living out what they claim to have in, the, in their inner life. James says, if they're not living it out, then they're not a genuine Christian. Because someone who is a mature Christian, someone who is a Christian, is someone who is living their faith out. And it shows by love and works. Let's move on to chapter 3. Chapter 3 shows us that a mature Christian controls his tongue. So you got this little tongue, right, in your mouth. It's a powerful little member of your body. And James understands this. And look at the, the exhortation that James gives in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. <laughs> so he talks about the tongue. He says, nobody can tame his own tongue. And if, you, if you were able to do that, then you'd be perfect. And of course, none of us are perfect. But in chapter 3, James goes on to use three illustrations. And these three illustrations are showing the power of our tongue. See, the tongue can be used for good, but it's also very, it can be destructive as well. So let's talk about the tongue and see the three illustrations that James gives us. Number one, we're going to see here that the tongue has power to direct. It has power to direct. And the two, the two illustrations are in verses 3 and 4. Look at these. Look at verses 3 and 4. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Notice the last word, verse 4, directs. So the tongue has power to direct, to, to steer, to, to guide, if you will. 
And we often think that our words are unimportant. But God says that He can use our words to direct people. In fact, your words can be so powerful that God can use our words to to lead a soul out of sin and lead them to salvation in Christ. And so just as a horse needs a guide and just as a rudder needs a pilot, you know what that means? Do you see the connection? It also means our tongues need God to control them, don't they? If God's not controlling our tongues, then our, tr- our tongues will be like a ship without a pilot and a horse without a bit and a rider. The tongue has power to direct. Number two, the tongue also has power to destroy. It has power to destroy. And we see this in the fire and animal. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We'll stop there. (laughs) Right? Our tongue is small. And the tongue is an example of where, where we can see size doesn't determine its power, does it? The tongue is a powerful thing, even though it's, it's, it's small. And it's compared to fire, a, a little flame, it can be a dangerous thing. Because it can set an entire forest ablaze. The tongue is little, but it can cause great destruction. Do you see the connection there? Just like a little flame can burn down an entire forest, so your little tongue can destroy people. It's a flame. And so it can, through our lies, through our gossip, through our slander, destroy people, destroy families, and sadly, too often, through our gossip and our slander and our lies, we destroy churches. Churches are destroyed. I don't mean buildings here, okay? You understand a church is people. Church is made of believers in Christ. But sadly, churches have been set on fire by the tongue. And number three, we see here that the tongue has power to delight. It has power to delight. And we see the illustration of a fountain and a tree. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. With it, our tongue, that is, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You ever found a spring or some stream on a very hot day? Maybe this has happened to me several times. You're walking around in the bush when you're 
hiking or hunting, and it's and I didn't carry a water bottle with me. Sometimes I'll carry a little cup with me in my backpack, and you're walking around, you're hot, you're thirsty, and it's, it's refreshing to come across one of those 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 mountain springs or streams and stick your cup in the in, in there and and drink of that cool, refreshing water. It would be disgusting if you if you're really hot and thirsty and you and you try to get a drink, and if it was salt water, it'd be, ugh, you'd spit it out. You'd be disgusted. Because that's not what you expect. <laughs> and God's using our, our tongue here to describe it in a very interesting way in regard to the fountain. Your tongue should be a source of delight to people. Sadly, it is a mixture, is it not? From our very tongues come wonderful sweet water and bitter salty water it's impossible for a tongue to speak both blessing and cursing it does <laughs> how often do we bless god when we pray or when we're singing we're, we're blessing god and and then and then we might go home and <clears throat> you know that very same day we might start cursing people because of our anger Christians must allow the Holy Spirit to give forth the living water of the Word through their tongues. Because your power, there's great power in your tongue. It can delight, and it should delight. As James, no, sorry, Ephesians 4 says, there should be no unwholesome words coming out of your mouth. Instead, your words should be ministering grace to the hearer. Well, James gives some wonderful applications, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time. Let's just read starting here in chapter 3 verse 13. Okay? Chapter 3 verse 13 and see how James applies this cuz he's he's talking about wisdom from above and wisdom of below and, and and showing the contrast here. So let's see what he says about wisdom. Cuz one of the key themes in the book of James is wisdom, which is basically practical living. In this case, practical living that's directed by the Bible. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So this little application section talks about wisdom or practical living. It's tragic when Christians lack practical wisdom to direct their lives, isn't it? You ever, you ever talk to somebody who claims to be a Christian and they just, they just don't know what to do or they, they do a lot of foolish things and, and you wonder and you talk to them, why'd you do that? Well, I, I didn't know what else to do. Or, you know, they got some excuse, right? Why, why is it they don't know what to do? They're, they're, they don't have this practical wisdom that is that is guided and directed by the scriptures they don't know the scriptures and far too many people have the idea that 
being spiritual somehow means that you're an impractical person. Wrong. Bad idea. Nothing is farther from the truth. Because the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit guides us, He uses our minds. He actually uses your mind. He is, he is transforming our minds. James indicates here, notice, there's two sources of wisdom, right? And of course, a believer needs to be discerning. A believer needs to understand what is the source? Where's my thinking coming from? All right, not, not all thinking is good thinking, so what, what is the source here? Well, the tongue of a believer can be filled with true wisdom from above, or it can be false wisdom from below. You need to be aware and be discerning and, 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 and know the difference. Pray for God to give you wisdom from above. Pray for God to give you this discernment. Then we move on to chapter 4, and we see that a mature Christian is a peacemaker. A mature Christian is a peacemaker. Not a troublemaker, but a peacemaker, okay? And we're going to see here in chapter 4 that we have various enemies that we as Christians must face. There's three enemies the Bible talks about, and we're going to see all three of them mentioned here. The first one is your flesh. By flesh, we mean your sin nature, that, that, that evil nature that resides within every single one of us. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. By the way, did you notice verse 1? It mentions the word passions. These passions are at work in our bodies. And they're exciting our flesh, they're, and, it, and it creates problems in us. And by the way, let, let me just stop there for a moment, because you need to keep something in mind. Your body is not sinful. Okay, <laughs> There have been people throughout the centuries who think that uh, the physical is evil and spiritual is good. No, your, your body is not evil. God created bodies. Okay? God doesn't create evil things. Okay? But it is that fallen nature part of you, your flesh, your sin nature, that wants to control your body, wants to use your body for sinful purposes. Okay? Do you understand the difference? The body is neutral. It's not sinful. Body, your body can be used to glorify God, or it can be used for the wrong purposes as well, right? But there's passions, as verse 1 says, that are working in us try, and trying to excite our flesh and, and can create problems. And then in verse 2, James describes the believer's sinful actions here. These are the sort of things that can happen. This, this enemy, the flesh, uh, can cause a desire and 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 then... They, they desire and they, they kill to obtain, which is called murder, and then, and then they do, don't stop to pray about desires sometimes. And when they do pray, uh, we can pray selfishly. 
not all praying is, is for the right motive, James says. And so sometimes we can pray just to increase our, our, our own pleasures. And the flesh can even encourage a person to pray for the wrong things, wrong way. Of course, a believer is at war with himself when these sort of things are happening. So the flesh is something that's always with us. It's, it's one of our enemies we need to be aware of. And of course, if you're at war with your flesh, then there's, you're not at peace. And it's hard to be at peace with other people. It's hard to be a peacemaker. Well, there's a second enemy mentioned here. It's the world. And by the world, we don't mean the, the globe that we live on, planet Earth. We don't, that's not what we mean. When the Bible talks about the world, it's referring to the cosmos is this world system that we live in, which would include its beliefs and its philosophies. But look at verse 4. God says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's very interesting. Here, spiritual adultery, this is what we're talking about, spiritual adultery, is is kind of the equivalent of physical adultery where we're supposed to be married to Jesus Christ. The Bible describes the church as the bride of Christ. So we're supposed to be married to Him. But the problem is, spiritual adultery is when you are married to Jesus, but then you, you go and love something else. In this case, it's loving the world. That's called spiritual adultery. Well, in Bible times, God called Israel's idolatry adultery. And why did He do that? Because those idols were robbing the affections of His people. Idols were drawing the attention that God deserved, His worship, away from Him to something else. That's adultery. Well, how can Christians have friendship with the world when God has called us out of the world? How can we become like this? Well, there's various steps that a believer can take to enter into this wrong relationship with the world. But notice it starts with friendship with the world. James says it starts with friendship with the world. And then when you, after you develop this friendship with the world, then it, then you end up being soiled by the world. You start rubbing up against the world. You know what happens? Their dirt comes onto you, right? And then what happens is, after you've, you've, you've rubbed up against them a, a while and, and the soil of the world is, is developing on you, you end up loving the world, its system and its philosophies, and eventually you know what happens? You're pressed into the world's mold. Romans 12.2 says, we become for, conformed to the world. So we start thinking and talking and acting like this world system. And then, of course, the result is is uh, any, any compromising believer is judged with the world. And so you need to understand the process. How do you get there? It's, it's not a big jump. It's little steps. You've got to be aware of those little steps to the end. So we have the flesh is our enemy. The world is our enemy. 
And in verses 6 and 7, tell, our, tell us about our enemy, the devil. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We all know who the devil is, I hope. He goes by various names and titles in the Bible. We also know him as Satan, who, of course, used to be Lucifer. God created him as a, as a good angel, but, of course, he rebelled against God, and uh, he sinned. He was proud and arrogant. And so you need to understand your enemies here. And it's helpful to know who your enemy is so you know who, who and what you're fighting against. You see, Christians who live for the world and the flesh often become proud. And you know what the devil's going to do? He's going to take advantage of that situation. He's very wise. You remember, he has been around for thousands of years, several thousands of years. And he understands pride. It was pride, after all, caused him to fall. And so... Pride is one of his chief tools in his toolbox he's going to use against us. And so it's important we examine ourselves to see if any of these enemies are defeating us. Because if they are, then we're not being a mature Christian. So James gives us some exhortations then we need to heed. Several exhortations. And James turns to three important warnings and he's going to call us to repent of our sins. Why? Because unless we as individuals in the church are right with God, then we can't have peace. We can't have peace if we're not right with God. And so James gives us some exhortations. And the first one he says here in verse 8 is to beware of pride. Beware of pride. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. What happens when people are proud and arrogant? We often become very critical. We, we criticize other people. We're, we're certainly not being peacemakers when we're proud. And so conflicts often happen among Christians when we're proud. We start judging people. We start speaking evil of one another. The Bible teaches us we must have discernment. But this doesn't mean that we can then judge the motives of other people because we can't see our, our hearts. We can't see other people's hearts. But when we judge other Christians without love and mercy, we're making ourselves lawgivers. And the Bible says that God is the only lawgiver. We see that in James and other places. But then on the other hand, if we would devote ourselves to obeying God's word, not <clears throat> investigating to see how well others obey it, you know what would happen in our churches? You know what would happen in our families? There'd be peace. There'd be harmony. And James suggests here in chapter 12 that the only one who has the right to judge is the one who has the power to punish. And of course, that's God. Because in verse 12, he says, there is only 
one lawgiver, and it's not you, it's not me. <laughs> Verse 12, chapter 4, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Boy, that would, that would really solve a lot of problems if we did just that verse. It would, it would bring peace and harmony. So beware of pride. Beware of pride. Wars and fighting originate in pride. Pride puts us as a, at a distance from God because God doesn't like the proud. Pride defiles our hearts as well as our works. But James gives a second warning. He says, beware of criticism. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then he goes on again in verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Of course, who is that? That refers to God. That refers to God. So, beware of criticism. Don't judge people's motives. You can't see their heart. All you can see is what they say and what they do. So, beware of pride, beware of criticism. And then number three, beware of boasting. Beware of boasting. Verse 13 talks about this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So, what does God tell us to do? He says we ought to have this attitude, a humble attitude that says, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills. That doesn't mean you can't make plans. And you should make plans. You should pray about your plans. But as we go about our lives, everything is as the Lord wills. Now these believers were boasting about their plans. They were boasting about their anticipated success. They, they, they wanted to go into the big city. They wanted to set up their business. And they wanted to come back wealthy. So God warns them that this kind of boasting is dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Well, to begin with, we, we don't know anything about tomorrow. We're not assured of anything that we're even going to be alive tomorrow. Only God knows what's going to happen tomorrow and the day after that. And so therefore, the post, the, the, this person who is boasting about tomorrow is really claiming to be God then, aren't they? They're claiming to be God if, if, if they know what's going to happen in the future. And by the way, verse 17 sums up the chapter quite well and points out that we can sin by neglect. Not only can you sin by your deliberate action, but you can sin by neglect, according to verse 17, because if you don't do what is right, what you know to be right, then you have sinned against God. 
So it's not simply what we do, it's also what we don't do that is sinful. So my friend, you need to understand, as it says here, life is short. Life is like steam coming out of your pot. It's only there for a little bit. And you can't afford to waste it. So we must make our lives count for Christ before He returns. So that brings us to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we see a mature Christian lets God deal with his troubles. We're all going to have troubles. We're going to have trials. And when we do, we need to let God deal with those. How how do we do that, though? Have you ever wondered? how that, That sounds impossible. How? James gives us some helpful instruction here. And the first thing James tells us to do is be patient when you're wronged. People are going to wrong you. They're going to do wrong. They're going to... Well, that's just... You need to understand, as we come to chapter 5 here, it gives a warning to the rich and how the rich were were wronging the poor, especially the poor Christians. And you, You need to understand something. In those days, there was this great divide that existed between the rich and the poor, uh, my understanding is there was no middle class like like we have today, middle class. Uh, certainly, if there was, it wasn't a major presence like we have today. And so it appears that the gospel appeared uh, appealed to the poor, but as Jesus says, it was, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so that seems to be going on here. And so as a result, these rich people rejected Christ, but, but uh, poor people were coming to Christ, many were, and, and these rich people were oppressing the poor. And so James is saying, be patient when you're wronged. Now, the problem is addressed for us here in chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And we don't have time to read everything, but, but, but look what the problem is here. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat and, and, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So there's the problem. The poor were being oppressed by the rich. And notice in verse 6, they're not resisting. Which which points us to verse 7 for the solution. Notice... The solution of verse 7, and we see the key word, it's be patient. Because verse 7 says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then we get the example of the farmer. What does it look like to be patient? Well, a farmer has to be patient, because look what God says about the farmer in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And verse 8, again, exhorts us to be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
In other words, my friend, there is light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus is coming again. Right? So that's the solution. And James is encouraging these suffering Christians basically this. Hey, get your eyes off your troubles and put your eyes on Christ. Put your eyes on God. Be patient. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is hope because Jesus is coming. And by the way, that's it's an interesting word there, patient. It doesn't mean that you're just to kind of sit idly by and, and do nothing and you know, don't, don't do what some people were doing and you go and sell everything you have and kind of sit on top of the mountain and wait for King Jesus to come back. That's not the point. The word actually carries the idea of endurance. You're to bear your burdens. You're to fight your battles until the Lord comes again. There is stuff for you to do. Don't be idle. Don't be lazy. Keep serving, but keep watching. And so we see the, the illustration there of a farmer. But another illustration that James gives, gives is, is Job. He's, he's the classic example. You can see him mentioned in verse 11, which says, Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. What do we know about Job? He's, he's kind of the classic example. Well, God gave some trials to Job, did he not? God had a wonderful purpose for those trials in Job's life. God permitted Job to be tried. And so regardless of what trials may come, we have to be steadfast. We have to be patient. We know that, that God is love, but when the rubber meets the road, are we living that out? Are we being patient? Are we being steadfast? Do we really believe what Romans 8 says, that all things work together for good to those who love God? To those who are called according to His purpose? By the way, the all things working together for good? What is the good? Romans 8 answers that. In the next verse, the good is you're being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God's using those trials to conform you into the image of Christ. So the solution is to be patient. Be patient. Well, a mature Christian is going to let God deal with his troubles. God's in charge. God's in control. God's good. But we also see here that we're to be prayerful in our trials. Not only be patient, but be prayerful. In our trials. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth 
bore its fruit. Notice that little paragraph there is talking a lot about prayer, is it not? And so when you and I go through trials, we need to rely on God. Talk to Him. Leave your troubles in His capable hands. By the way, the Bible nowhere promises that Christians are going to have an easy life. Okay, that is a that is a bad theology that teaches Christians to come to Christ because he has a wonderful plan for your life and you're you're not going to be sick and you're going to become wealthy and we call that the health wealth prosperity gospel. Right? The Bible doesn't teach that. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. In fact, we see many examples in Scripture, do we not? People who come to Christ, put their faith in Christ, and they have problems. They have troubles and affliction and trials and suffering. And so the Bible tells us what to do when these trials come, though. It gives us hope that we can endure. Some Christians are going to go through a trial specifically planned by God. But what should you do when you're going through the trial? Not only should you be patient, my friends, but James exhorts you to pray. Pray to the one who knows. Cast your care on him because he cares for you. And and, and why pray? Because God says he's going to give you the grace necessary to endure it. That doesn't mean the trial is going to go away. You, You might get to keep that trial for the rest of your life. But God says He's not going to give you any more than you can endure. He's going, to, he's going to give you His grace, His divine enabling. He's going to give you His strength so that you can bring Him glory and honor through your trial. So, My friend, we've seen a lot about spiritual maturity today. James talks a lot about what it means to grow up, to be conformed to the image of Christ. What does that look like? Well, we, we've, we've seen it from the book of James. And I hope that by God's grace that He would make us this kind of a person. That our faith would be a genuine faith. It would be real and it would be proved by love and works. And, and that our lives would bring honor and glory to God. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to grow up. He doesn't want us to be the... The, the spiritual baby who's still sucking on the milk bottle. So how are you doing, my friends? How are you doing? That doesn't mean none of us have arrived at perfection. None of us are there yet, but are you growing? Is there progress? <laughs> there should be, right? Look, look back on your life. If you're not seeing progress over the last 10 years, then you need to be asking some serious questions. Need to be seeking help. Need to be looking to the source of wisdom, the, the source of our strength, the source of the grace is, of course, God. May He enable us to please Him and to be mature Christians. Let's pray.